Okay, guys, let's, let's open up with prayer tonight. Theology is doxological, and we can only approach theology correctly in a posture of worship, in prayer. So let's pause tonight and let's recognize Almighty God in our midst. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts be open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord be with you. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O oh Israel, hope in the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. O Lord, open thou our lips. O God, make speed to save us. O Lord, make haste to help us. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Praise ye the Lord. The Lord's name be praised. And let's pray. Father, as we gather together as your people tonight, in obedience, Lord, to your word, and in submission to your word, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher and that he would lead us into all truth and drive away error from our minds and from our hearts, that we might be the humble and devoted people that you desire us to be, evermore imaging forth Christ in our words and in our acts and in our thoughts and in our affections, O Lord, we pray. So guide us tonight, we ask, and be glorified in everything that we say and think tonight. We need you, we depend upon you and your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So we'll try to get through two articles tonight. I think we shall do it. I, I um, have left this as brief as I can. Of works before justification, article 13, of works of supererogation, article 14. So let's just read through the two articles. <clears throat> 13, works done before the grace of Christ and the inspiration of his spirit are not pleasant to God. For as much as they spring, not of faith in Jesus Christ, neither do they make men meet to receive grace, or, as the school authors say, deserve grace of congruity. Yea, rather, for that they are not done as God hath willed and commanded them to be done, we doubt not that they have the nature of sin. Now, by school authors there, what the uh, framers of the uh, article mean are the medieval scholastics. This is um, from around the, the 9th century up into the 13th century, uh, really crowning and flowering in Thomas Aquinas. Um, but the, these are the scholastics or the schoolmen or the school authors, and they're often the they're often the objects of attack in the writings of the reformers, 
but they're also often the objects of praise. Thomas Aquinas being the chief, he's the angelic doctor, and um, the reformers will go after Thomas Aquinas here, but they will praise him there. And uh, so we need to take that into account. Article 14 of works of supererogation, voluntary works besides over and above God's commandments, commandments, which they call works of supererogation, cannot be taught without arrogancy and impiety. For by them men do declare that they do not only render unto God as much as they are bound to do, but that they do more for his sake than of bounden duty is required. Whereas Christ saith plainly, when you have done all that are commanded to you, say this, we are unprofitable servants. <clears throat> now, uh, both of these um, commandments today flow out of the commandment that we considered uh, on good works hitherto or previously. But I just want to go over again the teachings of Trent that they're responding to. There's three statements here. Trent, once again, was the quote-unquote ecumenical council that was a response to the Reformation. So we have the Reformation 1517. This is again, right, this is the quincentenary year. This is, the, this is Reformation 500. And uh, th this is our chance to, to celebrate. We're not going to get another chance for another 500 years, and most of us won't be around uh, at, the, at the millennial celebration. Most of us. Um, but uh, we, should, we should take occasion, I think, as a church to celebrate. Celebrate Reformation 500. Well, in response to the Reformation, the Roman Catholic uh, theologians and uh, clergymen began the Council of Trent, which went on for a number of years, uh, very late in response to the uh, to the Reformation, <clears throat> and uh, they rebutted just about everything that the reformers had to say. A B C A. If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else, so this is official Roman Catholic dogma doctrine. It's never been repealed. If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy, which remits sins for Christ's sake alone, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. If you are hoping in nothing but the blood of Jesus, you are to be accursed. This is Roman doctrine. Huh. B, if anyone says that grace whereby we are justified is only the favor of God and nothing else. Let him be anathema. See, if anyone says that all our works done before justification are truly sins or merit the hatred of God, let him be anathema. Now, it's the third point here that is the immediate, uh, the immediate uh, statement of Trent that the articles are responding to. According to the Church of England, every work done before the inspiration of his spirit, before the works of the grace of Christ, are simply not pleasing to God. They have nothing about them that pleases God. Now you'll note, you'll note here that phrase, the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit, which we pray tonight. That's the collect before uh, our communion service, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name. 
Um, because the reformers believe that holiness only comes by the authorship of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only one who breathes himself into us to create holiness. It's not resident in us. It's not native to us. It's only the gift of God. And that's why Paul will say very clearly when he's describing the holy life of the Christian that it's the fruit of the Spirit. That if we're to have, um, by the way, it's very interesting, you know, the way that Paul phrases that when he, when in, in the Greek there, it's in the, the verb's in the singular, the fruit of the spirit. It doesn't say the fruits of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. And then he, he uses a singular verb, and I don't want to carry that too far, but ha some of us suggested that it ought to read the fruit of the spirit is love and then a colon and then following that all these attributes that are characteristic of the love of God, which is the fruit of his Holy Spirit, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, all of those belong to the state of love. But holiness is love. Holiness is the love of God in our hearts, love to God, love to man, and that is the fruit of the Spirit. Only the inspiration of the Spirit can create that in us. Um, and without that working of the Spirit in us, without the state of grace, that is uh, the new birth or regeneration, simply put, nothing, absolutely nothing in this life is pleasing to God. Now, um, I, I just want to say that this is a very difficult doctrine for unbelievers to accept. It's a very difficult doctrine for most Christians to accept. And I, I think we just, it, it behooves us tonight to be honest with that and to face that and to kind of look inside ourselves and ask, are we willing to surrender our judgments to Scripture in this regard that outside of Christ there is nothing pleasing to God? Now, uh, a couple of things that I want to look at. You'll notice on page two that I've given us a rather lengthy quote from Calvin. And I've stitched this together I've stitched this together from, um, from the Institutes, and I want to read through this. Um, I want to read through, just uh, we'll look briefly at what the prayer book has to say, and then we'll talk about common grace and what that means. Um, and then look at a couple challenges to Article 13, namely Cornelius and Ahab. Two things that I want to consider here. Um, and uh, then we're going to maybe open it up for conversation tonight. The Roman doctrine that outside of Christ and of grace and before regeneration, humanity can please God with their works is rooted necessarily in a low view of human sin and a low view of God's law. That is, the... the um, the high vaulting demands of the righteousness of God's law are not considered in the way that they ought to be considered. For if they were, no one would truly say that by ourselves and without the grace of God, without the spirit of God, we can offer pleasing works to God. They're simply not understanding <laughs> how demanding the law of God is to us as individuals, nor are they understanding the effects of, of human sinfulness. What happened, um, you'll, you'll note there, you'll, before we look at Calvin and a, a scripture here tonight, you'll notice in that article 13, we see this uh, grace of congruity coming from the school authors. 
Um, what's being referred to here is the medieval idea that subsequent to the fall, and we've already talked about this, subsequent to the fall, um, the, the human person was damaged and was diminished, but not in such a way or to such a degree that the human person could not still have motion to God and by repeated action or habitual action begin to impel itself back to God. This is the idea. So it's rooted in the idea that the fall damages us, but it does not destroy us. That is our ability to move to God. <laughs> um, and uh, that is a quite again, quite plainly, a low view of human sin. And I want to look um, at Romans 13 with you. So, sorry, Romans 3. And see what Paul here has to say about the state, the state of human nature outside of grace. And then we're going to look, we're going to look at what Calvin has to say uh, about this. Romans chapter 3, and this is the well, well familiar verse. Someone, someone want to read that for me? Romans chapter 3, uh, 9 uh, to 18. Actually, let's go right through to 9 verse 20. 3, 9 to 20. Who can read that? Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Thank you, Tim. Now you'll notice that the function, what, what is the function of the law according to Paul? The function of the law is to stop your mouth, so that you cannot lay claim <laughs> to anything. You cannot lay claim to any goodness. The law says there is nothing in you to lay claim to righteousness or worth before God. And Paul has uh, repeats himself in various ways in chapter 3 to let us know that we are altogether worthless, without worth. There is no fear of God. We have turned utterly aside. There is no one righteous and no one does what is good. Now it begs the question, if no one does what is good, according to St. Paul, how can you do 
good works that are pleasing to God before regeneration. If no one does what is good, there are no good works to be pleasing to God whatsoever. Um, everyone has turned aside and no one seeks for God. Now, this is, the, this is the crucial element in, I think, Paul's argument and all of Scripture's argument as to why there is no good being done. For surely, the philanthropist working in, in, uh, in the deepest darkness of Peru, what, is, uh, what does Paddington say? In, in the, in the, the, what is the phrase from Paddington? Darkest Peru? Anyways. Deepest, darkest Peru, something like that. Surely the philanthropist working in darkest Peru is doing good. You see the objections that the world can raise to, to, to Paul's doctrine. Surely the, the well digger digging wells in, 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 in Africa is doing good. Paul says quite clearly that there's none that does good because that none of them seek God. So that even though there may be external acts of seeming and apparent goodness towards our fellow human being, because no one seeks God, the works in themselves have no righteous value. This is what's called in Luther's idiom, first commandment righteousness. That is, un un unless you obey the first commandment, unless you love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, unless he is the reason why you're doing the thing that you're doing, that thing has no moral value to it. Now go back to the article 13 and you'll see how the reformers explain themselves. For they are not done as what? As God hath willed them and has commanded them to be done. How has he willed and commanded works to be done? Well, through faith in Christ on the one hand, and that faith in Christ is to bring us back to the original righteousness of doing everything to God, everything for God. Whatever you do, Paul says, whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever work it is, do it all what? To the glory of God. That is it. I love God. That's why I do these things. And so scripturally speaking, if the first commandment is not present, the love of God, then all human works lose their, their value. Um, and they are considered vain and they are considered futile. Again, this is a hard, a hard um, doctrine for us to submit to in the age of this human renaissance that just keeps flowering and flowering. We think better and better about ourselves as a human race, right? We think better, look at all the stuff we're doing. We've been to the moon, right? We've, we've, we're, 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 we're innovative, all these things. We're, we're essentially good and we get these, we get these kind of, uh, um, these moral uh, tirades and these moral pontifications from various personages. Like, did you see the award recently that was a one for Stranger Things? You know, notwithstanding the merits of the show, the award uh, for Stranger Things and the, the actor who plays Hopper just kind of going off on this moral, you know, we're going we're gonna to hunt the monsters, he says. We're going to protect the freaks. We're going to kill those who would, who would or, or we're going to slay those who would seek to, to push the freaks aside. Well, I start getting really nervous, actually, at that point. 
when when the, when the world starts talking about killing the monsters, <laughs> who would who would keep the freaks out? It actually got quite violent. But from his perspective, it was this moral sermon that he was giving, and they think really well of themselves. And the world is really good at thinking well of itself. And the moment we say, there's nothing that you do that has any moral worth whatsoever. It's not good. It's bad. Then they will get very poisonous indeed. I'll quote the verse again. It's not my favorite verse, but I seem to quote it very often. Jeremiah 17, 11. What does it say? For the heart of man is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately wicked. Who can know it? I may have said this to you before, but when Luther goes to translate that verse, es ist das Herz ein trotzig und verzagt Ding. Wer kann es ergründen? Trotzig und verzagt. It's defiant and it's despairing. It, it, is, it is so deeply wicked that it looks down upon itself and it has no hope whatsoever because the pit is so bottomless. That's human nature. And we, we need to come to terms with that as a church. We need to accept the biblical doctrine. And we have to preach it. I have to preach it. And I, I, I beg you for prayers, for courage to preach it, because it's really hard to do. It's really difficult in this world to say those things. Um, uh, but unless, unless the world's confronted with their need, then the gospel becomes a band-aid only. The gospel becomes an ointment or a salve to apply to a little boo-boo rather than, than uh, what it really is, which is the restoration of the human person. You know the, the, the film Noah? Not, what's it called, Noah? The, the recent one with, um, with Gladiator? Yeah. Cur yeah. <laughs> yeah. Terrible movie, right? It's all kind of suffused with this Jewish Kabbalistic uh, mysticism and... What not? But there's a scene in there. There's a scene when Noah comes down into the into the the human camp, and it's just devilish. They are devouring each other. That's the that's the the that's a picture. Not not a whole picture, but it's a picture of what humans have become. We are self devourers. And I like what Alistair Begg says. He says, when I read the news, when I read the news of all that's going on, I'm never shocked at what's going on. I'm never shocked at how bad it is. I am always shocked that it's not worse, he says. <laughs> because God in his grace, Jim prayed this last night, God in his grace, he pours out his, his, his preserve, uh, preserving power upon the whole world, just and unjust alike, to hold them up out of the abyss that they'd fall into in their depraved nature. We are depraved, twisted, devouring monsters, all of us. And uh, that's, the, that's the, the, uh, the only reality outside of grace. Now let's, now let's turn to Calvin then and read slowly through what Calvin has to say. I've stitched this together. I've stitched this together from um, books two, mostly out of book two in the Institutes, volume one, book two. So let's read through this. Calvin says, This saying from Augustine pleases me, that the natural gifts were corrupted in man through sin, but that his supernatural gifts were stripped from him. That is, so what he's saying here, just pause, the, the, the faculties were diminished, the, the intellect, the, the affections, the will were desperately diminished, but not removed. 
But the supernatural gifts, that is faith, righteousness, orientation to God, were utterly stripped from him. From this it follows that he is so banished from the kingdom of God that all qualities belonging to the blessed life of the soul have been extinguished in him until he recovers them through the grace of regeneration. Among these are faith, love of God, charity towards neighbor. Now, notice what he says here. Charity towards neighbor has been utterly removed and extinguished from the fallen human self. Zeal for holiness and for righteousness. The word of God does not leave a a half-life to man but it teaches that he has utterly died as far as the blessed life is concerned. Paul does not call the saints half alive when he speaks of our redemption. Even even when we were dead, he made us alive. He does not call upon the half alive to receive the illumination of Christ, but those who are asleep and buried. In the same way, the Lord himself says, the hour has come, when the dead rise again at his voice. Man is half alive, they say, therefore he has something safe. Of course, he has a mind capable of understanding, even if it may not penetrate to heavenly and spiritual wisdom. He does have some judgment of honesty. He has some awareness of divinity, even though he may not attain to a true knowledge of God. But what do these qualities amount to? The mind of man has been so completely estranged from God's righteousness that it conceives, desires, and undertakes only that which is impious, perverted, foul, impure, and infamous. The heart is so steeped in the poison of sin that it can breathe out nothing but a loathsome stench. But if some men occasionally make a good show, their minds nevertheless ever remain enveloped in hypocrisy and deceitful craft, and their hearts bound by inner perversity. A man may be puffed up and pass off hypocrisy as righteousness, but after he is compelled to weigh his life in the scales of the law, he discovers that he is a long way from holiness and is in fact teeming with a multitude of vices with which he previously thought himself undefiled. So deep and torturous and the recesses in which the evils of covetousness, covetousness lurk that they easily deceive a man's sight. The apostle has good reason to say, I should not have known covetousness if the law had not said, you shall not covet. For if by the law, covetousness is not dragged from its lair, it destroys wretched man so secretly that he does not even feel its stab. <laughs> well, there, there's just a taste of, of, the, of the picture and the portrait that Calvin, I think, scripturally, with a scriptural pencil, as the Puritans would say, Uh, provides for us for the nature of human uh, life outside of grace. And I think Calvin is is really, really uh, important here in the sense that um, humanity will always think of itself as righteous and humanity will always think of its deeds before grace as righteous as long as they are comparing themselves with themselves. 
as long as they are comparing themselves with their neighbor. We do this all the time, right? We do this even as Christians. We're constantly judging one another and comparing ourselves against one another instead of comparing ourselves with God. And Calvin says the only place for sin to be exposed in this way, properly speaking, is for the Spirit of God to to bring us into a view of the righteousness of God. And he says when we come into a view of God's righteousness and of his holiness, he calls this phrase coram deo, in the face of God, in the presence of God. When we do that, all of our pretensions to righteousness just melt away. They just melt away. And I, 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 I really believe that as a church that we need to be so clear about the, the majestic righteousness of God that when unbelievers come into our presence that the, the pretense to righteousness just melts away so that they can receive the gospel. The gospel, they can fly to the mercy seat. There's gonna be no flying to the mercy seat. Why would you? <laughs> Why would you? Well, the mercy seat gives you, the mercy seat's gonna give you, uh, you know, a better job. The mercy seat's gonna give you a better wife. The mercy seat will give you, you know, these things. Rather than the mercy seat will protect you <laughs> from the wrath of God, which is raging and flaming against all unrighteousness. And so when the person recognizes, oh, wretch that I am, and I stand before God's judgment, they will not properly fly to the mercy seat. Um, and so Calvin, I think, is, is absolutely correct. What does the prayer book say? Looking down here. Our prayer book uh, has two things to say uh, saliently about human nature. One, in our, in our um, uh, common confession, it speaks of our manifold sins and wickedness. Manifold, many kinds. And that we are wicked. Um, and that we ought not cloak these before the face of the Almighty God. And then secondly, there is no health in us. Apart from Christ, no soundness, no health. Well, how can that say that? Because there is no unrighteous, no, not one. There is none that doeth good. <laughs> it's just not there. I don't know about you, but I, I, for, I've, been reading the, I've been reading this stuff, like many of you have. I've been reading this stuff for a long time. And it's still sometimes my rebellious, sinful nature just rebels against it. Just re- I don't want to admit it. But you see, the word of God just confronts us. And uh, you know, Calvin talks about being hemmed in by the mountains of God's word. And we have to let the word do that uh, for us. So the prayer, book, uh, the prayer book itself states these things. Well, what about common grace then? What about, what about the, the seeming goodness that we see around us? Um, is, is there any kind of virtue to that? Which is what Calvin says. On com- common grace just means um, there's special grace and common grace. Special grace is the saving grace of Christ applied to God's elect that unites us to Christ. Common grace is grace dispensed to all, irrespective. And so the Bible teaches, again, I've already stated this tonight, but just again, that everyone in this life receives the benefits of God's grace. 
So, I mean, just think about that. Where, where, where might we see that in culture? Where do we see the benefits of God's grace? It's everywhere. Where do we see common grace? What, what is common grace? Think of your, your heathen neighbors. I've got a neighbor. I was just going to say common grace is shown anytime an unbeliever does something that is good for somebody else. Anything that's, yeah. Any, anytime that a selfless act is performed. Yeah. It's common grace. It's common grace. Brushing That's off your, your car snow. Brushing <laughs> off, yeah, you know. Um, the, the fact that... Or, I, I actually, sorry, I could actually say, anytime that our neighbor does not kill our other neighbor, it is the common grace of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'll take it that far. Yeah. The fact that we're not all as bad as we could be. Yeah, exactly. That we're not monstrous devourers of each other. Anything where, where there's, there's celebration of beauty, where there's, where there's a celebration of moral wisdom or moral virtue in with respect to the second table. Anything where there's, where there's um, order, government, um, laws, police forces. John is a living example here of common grace of, <laughs> and special grace. <laughs> <laughs> and you know these things we should we should we should thank God for and um, um, and it's I think incumbent upon us as as believers to to bring this to the eyes of of our neighbors that we talk to as we as we are evangelizing that we ought to be pointing them to the grace of God that's allowing these things and to you know I I think it's a wonderful thing to be able to say to your philosopher friend who is who is showing an a special kind of uh sparkling erudite wisdom to say you know I, I see god i see the grace of god in what you're doing i see the grace of god in your life it's common grace god has blessed you god has enriched you would you not acknowledge him would you not acknowledge the lord you know but again it's what the response to the world enjoying all these gifts you remember what I, I mentioned this on Sunday when, when uh, Moses and Aaron first come to Pharaoh and they say, you know, Pharaoh, the Lord has commanded that you let the people go to, to worship him in the wilderness. It's time. It's been too long. He, he's owed worship. And Pharaoh says, who's this Lord that I should listen to him? Who's this Lord? And that is the response of the world. They drink in his gifts but the, the, the thing is, the gifts that they drink in, they turn into poison. It's, the, it's backwards alchemy. They take in gold and it comes out lead. They take in gold and it comes out of base metal because they do not acknowledge God. And when you enjoy a gift of God without redounding back to God or enjoying God or, or feasting on God, the gift becomes poisonous. This is the tragedy of our world. Um, all of the common graces in our life, the universities, the social systems, all of this stuff, it's good on a surface level, but enjoyed without God, it becomes poison. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, is so good on this. When he talks about this, it just makes your heart want to sink when you realize what the world is doing with God's gifts. Um, and, you know, the, the, I think one of the greatest pictures of this is, is uh, the... The, uh, the idolatry of the golden calf, right? They take, the, they take the gold. What was the gold meant to do? Where did they get the gold? 
They stole the gold from the Egyptians. God, God had promised it to them. When you leave Moses, you watch what I'm going to do, Moses. Moses says, and he, remember, he, he goes and he says, God, you, you told me to come here and they're not listening to me. And, and now they're, the Israelites hate me because, you know, their work's being tripled because they have to make bricks now without straw. Lord, you've not done as you promised to do. And God says, you watch what I'll do, Moses. You watch what I'll do. And when you leave, they'll send you out with riches. And so God sends them out with plunder. They plunder the Egyptians with all of their gold. Just get out of here. Take our jewels. Take our gold. What were they supposed to do with it? The gifts were supposed to be furnish the temple. Part of it did, but another part of it went to the golden calf. They made this, they made this calf and they started to dance. Now, if I were in a Pentecostal church, I would say something about dancing. But they, they started to dance around the golden calf, and they had a great orgy. And they started to worship the creature rather than God. And um, it remember what happened? The earth swallowed them up. It's very bloody, right? Um, destruction follows. And when the world enjoys God's gifts without directing it back to God, it's poisonous. So I, I just want you to kind of let your imagination soar for just a moment and to think of all the good gifts that this world is enjoying, whether it's the police force or the pub or the library or the, the hospitals. They're just enjoying it and they're claiming it as their own. They're, they're plagiarizing God. God wrote it, but they're saying it's ours. And all of it, see, we tend to think that sin, the, the um, murder and theft, all these things, that that's what is going to, and it does invoke God's wrath. But these things invoke God's wrath too, and it's rottenness. It's just rottenness. Um, and uh, boy, we've got to, uh, we've got, we have to think more about this. So what does Calvin say about common grace? Let's read this, um, chapter, uh, chapter four. Whenever we come upon these matters in secular writers, let that admirable light of truth shining in them teach us that the mind of man, though fallen and perverted from its wholeness, is nevertheless clothed and ornamented with God's excellent gifts. If we regard the Spirit of God as the sole fountain of truth, we shall neither reject the truth itself nor despise it wherever it shall appear unless we wish to dishonor the Spirit of God. For by holding the gifts of the Spirit in slight esteem, we condemn and reproach the Spirit himself. Now, this is important, I think, and I know this is, this is somewhat tangential, but um, when we're thinking about the common grace of God in the world, the works of the world that are not pleasing to God, they're not pleasing to God because they're not directed to God, these good works. Yet, as Calvin says, if we despise their appearance, if we reject the truth that manifests itself in these common gifts, we dishonor the Spirit of God. And so there's an important aspect that, that though the world uses the common graces and gifts of God to their destruction, we as God's people can use, as the Israelites used the gold of Egypt to furnish God's temple, we can use God's gifts in a way that's pleasing and glorifying to God. And so we, in a sense, we spoil the world. 
We, we, we spoil it in the sense of we rob it. We, we take their gold. We use it. And we can do that well. And we need to do it. We need to honor God and acknowledge God wherever we see his light in the world. Whether it's Plato. Now, Calvin's, Calvin loves Plato. He's, <laughs> he loves Plato. He thinks quite highly of him. Whether it's Plato or whether it's Aristotle or whether it's, it's um, uh, a film of Jane Austen. Because that's a safe film to name. You know. <laughs> Um, Jane Austen, yes. Yeah. Um, Pride and Zombies. Is it Pride and Zombies? Um, yeah, whether, whatever it is, if, if the Spirit is manifesting the goodness of God, it is incumbent on the people of God to acknowledge it and to enjoy it in a way that the, the world cannot. And there's just something kind of subversive about that. Delightful, I think. What then? Shall we deny that, that the truth shone upon the ancient jurists who established civic order and discipline with such great equity? Shall we say that the philosophers were blind in their fine observation and artful description of nature? Shall we say that those men were devoid of understanding who conceived the art of disputation and taught us to speak reasonably? Shall we say that they are insane who develop medicine? devoting their labor to our benefit? What shall we say of all the mathematical sciences? Shall we consider them the ravings of a madman? A madman? No, we cannot read the writings of the ancients on these subjects without great admiration, not for them, but for God. We marvel at them because we are compelled to recognize how preeminent they are. But shall we count anything praiseworthy or noble without recognizing at the same time that it comes from God? Let us accordingly learn by their example how many gifts the Lord left to human nature even after it was despoiled of all true good. Well, all of that to say, when we say that the works of humanity outside of grace are not pleasing to God because not directed to God, we're not saying there are not gifts out there. We're not saying there's not good things out there. We're not saying that people don't help people across the street with, with seeming, with, with, with a kind of a genuine charity. It's just that they're using God's gifts not directed to him. And so there's just great opportunity for us as Christians to plunder Egypt. And we need to do that, I think. We, we, must, be, we must do that. There's many things to avoid in the world. Many things that we need to avoid. Many things that Christians have no business doing. But there are many things that the world has that we need to recognize and enjoy as believers. And I think this doctrine here protects us from an insularism and a provincialism that is, that is woefully ignorant and uh, woefully distasteful, unnecessarily distasteful to the world. This kind of isolationism that Christians invariably get into. I grew up with, with it. A kind of a holiness isolationism that would not regard what the Lord had given in common grace. And it dishonors the Lord. Um, it dishonors the Lord greatly. And so we, we, have to be, we have to be open to this. And I do think, as, a, as an aside, that when we can speak to our neighbor about what God has given them, God blessed you with gifts. It is an avenue of evangelism that few of us make ourselves, um, um, few of us use. Why not go to our neighbor who's, 
who's done something really well in that sense and say, you know, God has blessed you. God has given you incredible gifts. Let your neighbor know that you see the gifts of God in their lives. You remind, you, when I see you, I see the gifts of God. Let's bring God into the picture. Um, and then say, and then let them know that it's pushing them to destruction at the right moment. <laughs> okay, guys, can we do two things uh, briefly? I know that I said I had little to say and I've been pontificating quite uh, gustily, but can, can we just um, look at uh, Acts 10 on Cornelius? I think this deserves, it just deserves our attention because um, it is um, seemingly contradictory to what we're talking about tonight. By the way, I need to, to correct myself. Last week, or last time we met, I, I talked about the scriptural prayer, I'm not worthy of the least of thy mercies. And I mistakenly attributed it to the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee and the tax collector whose spirit was that very prayer. He would not lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast. <laughs> but the prayer actually comes from Jacob. That's Jacob's prayer. And it's a good prayer. I'm not worthy of the least of thy mercies. Something that we ought to be praying routinely. Okay, Acts 10. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man, who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror. And he said, what is it, Lord? <clears throat> and he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send man to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among them, those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he went, he sent to Joppa. Peter, just to kind of fast forward, is the sixth hour. Uh, he's, this is at noon. He's praying and he, he sees the sheet come down to him with the pig front and center. The Lord says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Um, and uh, then, then Peter goes forth um, uh, to meet with uh, Cornelius. And <clears throat> fast forward to verse 25. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet, worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit with anyone or of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or uh, unclean. Um, now, uh, just down to 34 then, Peter opens his mouth. And he starts to preach to them about Jesus. And uh, verse 43 uh, notice that, or 42, he commanded us to preach to the people to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be a judge. Notice the judgment. 
in the apostles' preaching. It continually surfaces. They never, they rarely preach in the New Testament without proclaiming judgment. He's the judge. This is what Paul says to those at, at, on Areopagus. Judgment is central in apostolic preaching of the, of the gospel. Uh, to him all prophets bear witness. Then 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit comes. He falls on those while they're hearing the sermon. Um, and then they begin to extol God. They're given the gifts of the Spirit. And then they're baptized because they've received the Spirit. Now, um, I bring this up because it seems as if the, the alms, that is the good works of Cornelius, prevent or come before the giving of the Spirit of God. But if you'll, if you'll notice our, our article tonight, that outside of the inspiration of the Spirit... Before the grace of Christ, that is the regeneration of the spirit of, of the individual, um, nothing can be pleasing to God. How is it then that Cornelius, before grace, can have alms that rise up to God as a seeming condition for the mercy through his gospel? Well, I'm going to read what Calvin says, okay? Number eight, number seven there. Calvin on Cornelius. Cornelius must be put in the catalog of the old fathers who hoped for salvation of the Redeemer before he was revealed. Augustine thinks as we do, who affirms plainly that Cornelius could not pray unless he had faith. He had heard somewhat of the promised mediator, though the knowledge of him were obscure and entangled, yet was it some. And so what Calvin thinks here is that the description of his fear, of, he's a God-fearer, right? Cornelius is one who's allowed uh, in, in the, the synagogue to attend and to hear the reading of Scripture and the preaching of Scripture. And through that, somehow... Cornelius, as with the fathers of old, became aware of, an, of a mediator. And in that, in that uh, fledgling faith, or not fledgling, but in that uh, immature and imperfect faith in Christ, he begins to pray to God in a way um, that is consonant with our article tonight, that a condition of... Um, works being accept, acceptable to God is number three there you'll see in six you need the grace of Christ you need the inspiration of the Holy Spirit you need faith in Christ and then you need to do things as God has willed and commanded now folks I, I, I don't know here um, uh, if Calvin is right that Cornelius had some sense of the mediator that he was pitching his faith upon. I do think that as we read the story of Cornelius, it is not telling that God responds in his salvation because he had earned it through his alms, but that God's grace beforehand was leading and pulling Cornelius towards the fear of himself. Um, and that the, the alms that he did, whether in prayer or in good works, 
were a result of, of, uh, of common grace here. That's, that's simply all that I will say about that. You may have something else to say. We can open that up for conversation. Um, yeah, they, they weren't meritorious for salvation. Well, God isn't responding to him. God isn't responding to him because he did something. Cornelius here deserves me to, to fetch Peter because he's doing all these good works. No, but rather there's been a stirring and there's been a moving in Cornelius' heart as he's been listening to the, the word, as he's been sitting at the, the, the reading of scripture in the synagogue and allowed. And you'll notice that the scripture here focuses on the fear of God. He's, he's devout. He's being moved to God in the fear of God. He's bringing his whole household uh, to God. Uh, and he's, as a response of that, is giving generously to the people. That is, you, you get a sense here of, albeit imperfectly, the, the two tables, direction to God, and then the, the, the flow towards the people comes as, as a result of it. Um, I think that all that we can safely say here is that it's, it's the grace of God leading a person, directing a person to the, to the true faithful experience of faith in Jesus, um, which he experiences at the end of chapter 10. No, I don't think we can say that because of the, the falling of the Holy Spirit in verse, in verse 44 and following, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word. And it's at that point that Peter says that they are, they are um, you know, can we prohibit this man from being baptized, seeing that he's received the Holy Spirit, that he, he's, he's acknowledging, uh, I think here, the work of regeneration rather than, than um, uh, positing some regeneration before the preaching of the, the Word. Is that what you're saying? I was just curious. Yeah, I, I think that the falling of the Holy Spirit here is, is uh, synonymous with the regeneration of the Holy Spirit uh, because it's, it's, um, it's being linked here with baptism. Any other thoughts about that passage? It's the one... It's the, it's the one um, uh, gear, or the the it's the one um, fly in the ointment, I guess that people will try to use to demonstrate that works done before salvation can be pleasing to God. Like, but I think what we have to understand here is that this is a work of supernatural grace, uh, turning an unbeliever uh, to God in grace. He does not earning it. Remember that um, the scripture, at least in the book of Acts, will consistently talk, not consistently, but will talk about uh, uh, all those who are appointed. I mean, the doctrine of election really takes care of this, I suppose. All those who were appointed to eternal life believed. It's not based, the, this, all of this here, the grace that's going on beforehand, is rooted and founded on the appointment of Cornelius to salvation through the grace of election. Uh, I think is the way to, to he, think this through. He said, he said earlier that God is not responding salvifically because of Cornelius' works. But would it be safe to say that Cornelius, Cornelius' works are a response to the grace that he is experiencing just prior to his conversion? So say that again, Josh? You, yeah, so mm -hmm. you, said, you said that God is not responding salvifically to 
because of Cornelius' good works. Right. But would it be safe to say that Cornelius' good works are evidence of the grace of God in his life as he is being turned towards regeneration and conversion? Yeah, yeah. It is, it is, it is prevenient grace, yeah. I think, is, is the language we want to use. It is, it, it is prevenient grace leading him to a place where he can hear the gospel. What's important here is that we don't uh, look at back at Article 13, just that how it's phrased. Works done before the grace of Christ do not make men meet to receive grace. They don't make them suitable to receive grace. So the the alms that he's doing isn't making him more um, ready for grace or able to receive it, but they're evidence of the grace of God at work in his life. Yeah, I think his his works aren't making him more acceptable in some sort of way. They're they're just they're just a reflection of a work that's happening, but kind of behind the scenes. Exactly. Yeah, this is the the doctrine of prevenient grace. Now we have to be very careful because in the writing of the Puritans and in the movement of Puritanism, that you know I'm all over in so many ways, but the Puritans tended to have this idea of, of preparationism. Where, um, you know, they would counsel people to, to um, uh, do uh, certain works to make themselves ready to receive the grace of God. And it's a dangerous thing to do that. It's dangerous because there's a part truth there, right? There's a part truth. When we, when we, um, when we are counseling an unbeliever in our church on how to receive Christ, and they come and they say, well, I just, I don't know what to do. What do we say? Well, just keep on living in your sin? No, we, we ask them, to, we, we, we encourage them to seek the Lord. We encourage them to, to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. And as they, as they seek Him and respond to Him, we, 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 we believe that God in His mercy may indeed bring them to everlasting life through Christ. Um, and so there's an element of truth there. But there's, we, we don't want to say that, you know, do A, B, C, and D. And if you do these things, they will kind of earn or make you more apt to receive the grace of God. They will put you in a better place to receive the grace of God. We don't want to say that. Um, we don't want to encourage them in their sin. We want to tell them to stop sinning and to repent and do, do works like, like John the Baptist says, right? Meet for repentance. Um, and in your pursuit of God and in, 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 in um, listening to his word, seeking, seeking his grace. Josh? Uh, was, okay, so I was going to go uh, back uh, just to the prevenient grace. So I've heard, I've heard that term used in, a, in another context, not the, the Puritan one, but in a sort of semi-Pelagian one. The Wesleyan kind. The Wesleyan kind of yeah. prevenient grace. Which I yeah. think should probably be defined so not, as not to be confused. Right. So it's not. It's not. Um, the, 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 the Wesleyan definition being that that all humans experience some type of prevenient grace that take them to a decision point, yes. wherein they then exercise their will to choose or not choose the Lord. Right. Yeah. It. it um, it rests upon the what what regeneration means. Regeneration means for the reformed Protestant, for the Anglican. Regeneration means you're taking a block of stone and you're turning it into a living tree. 
It's an absolute fundamental change. The block of stone can't do a thing. Uh, you may have heard this before, but um, when I, we were doing our even song on Augustine, we had a we had a bunch of candles out front, and and I was just before the service was, was kind of lighting the candles, and some of them were battery operated. And one of them I was I was I was going at for a long time. It was wasn't lighting, and it started to smell really kind of funny. And I realized, oh, oh shoot, this is one of the battery operated ones, and the plastic was melting. And I could have held that flame to that battery operated candle all night, and it would never have caught fire. Well, it might have melted, but it would never have lit. What, ne what needed to happen was that the, the whole thing, right, needs to be changed. It needs to be a, a, a different kind of candle for the fire to come. And that's the sense that regeneration is a new, all things are new, Paul says. Behold, all things are new. The old man has passed away, you become new. It's a new creature. Transformation. Utter transformation. Utter tra so, but not like bullfrogs and butterflies, they've both been born again. As, as kind of lovely as that song is. For those of you who don't know what I, you know, for those who came up, grew up in the 80s, you know, you know, bullfrogs and butterflies, they've both been born again, right? Because there's, there's continuity. The biblical message of the gospel is that, is the, is that there is a, a striking discontinuity about the old man and the new man. Right. Yeah. We're not a new nature. We're not a it's not mending. Right? It's not just, it's not transforming the sense of like a, you're going to cocoon and then you become better. Yes. Yeah, no, not like that. It's a new nature, fundamentally different. Um, the metamorphosis occurs after regeneration. Where we are sanctified. sanctified. We grow our wings. And that change and we, we grow in assurance in our faith. Yes. We yes. metamorphosize into the into the yeah. regeneration makes us the caterpillar. And I cocoon. I I, I, I myself cocoon once in a while myself. I just need to cocoon <laughs> occasionally. John, would it be safe? Would it be safe to say as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking of these the the good works that natural man does uh, without God. God is good. God is the source of all goodness. Yes. So all the all the goodness that occurs in the human race, its origin and source is God. Every good and perfect gift comes Absolutely. from the Father of so Lights. We're, we're not saying that that goodness in itself is an evil. Where it is not acceptable to God is in that where that natural man does not acknowledge yeah. God. And he, he's, he's that block of wood. He can't do a good work. He's yeah. not designed to to do something good that pleases God. Yeah. The, the natural man accepts not the things of the Spirit of yeah. God. He, he cannot want God above anything else. He cannot. He cannot want God more than anything else. It's utterly impossible to him. And that's why we need to present the gospel in these terms. The gospel sets us free to love God more than anything else. That's it. That's what the gospel does. It, it allows us, liberates us, empowers us, changes us, so that God's the most important thing. And the world simply can't do it. And, and the, the message might be, you know, we're talking about the, these good works that they're doing, you see the goodness in them. Yeah. So wouldn't it be a shame to spend your whole life trying to be good or doing good things yeah. and have never, none of it ever accepted by God? Yeah. You know, repent. Let God change, change you. Yeah. Yeah, or or understanding yeah, that. Why would you want to spend your whole life? You obviously you want to do good things. Yeah. They're not accepted by God because you're not regenerate. 
Yeah. You know, let this action of God occur in your life to where these, with the good that you want to do, uh, would become acceptable to you. Yes. You know, in, in Christ. Yeah. But, you know, if we're going to use that tack with him. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, why don't you spend your whole life? You obviously do a lot of good things. You're gifted. You have. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and all, just pointing them to the author yeah, of these things. Would you let me introduce you to the author of your work? Can, can, I, can I tell you about the author? Mm-hmm. Can I show you what these things are pointing to? You know, why, again, why, why content yourself with the menu? Move beyond the menu to what the menu is pointing to. You know, have the Salisbury steak, for goodness sake. Don't stop just looking at the menu. The works are the signs that point to the fountain of them. And... Um, you know, we, we uh, yes, I'm going to stop there, guys. It's quarter to nine. I'm sorry. Um, is there anything, any, anything that, oh, well, you know what? We need to go back to Article 14. Can we just burn through this? What is Article 14 talking about? Works of supererogation, which we've been talking about for so many weeks now, works of supererogation had to do with states of life, that the Roman Catholic Church understood that some states of life, which aren't required, but are optional for believers, have um, more recompense and more reward to them. They're not commanded to us. Now, can you think of something in Scripture where they might get this from, from the Apostle Paul saying, I don't command this, but it's a good thing if you do it. Don't marry. Yeah, virginity, right? And so th- this is one, one example of, of a state of existence, a state of life that the Roman Catholic Church began to see as not, it's not a commandment, right? It's not part of God's... amped up super, yeah, super asceticism. Yeah, it's, it's all, all those forms of asceticism, uh, various stages of extreme. You know, like uh, Simon Stylite, he, he, he lived in a pillar, right? For like he lived on the top of a pillar for years and people would come and they would, they would you know, hoist food up to him. He, and he stayed on this pillar. He got so rotten that, that maggots were falling from his flesh and people would come and take the maggots as these holy things and use them to plaster on their body for, for grace and for healing, you know? But there you see extraordinary work. And what the, what the sense was, because you have, you have the, the, the moral commandments of God and his righteousness as, as demonstrated in the, in the commandments of God, because these were above the commandments, you could actually do more than God required and your righteousness would go into a treasury, a treasury of merit. And if you were an individual who did much less than you needed to do, and you found yourself in a place where penalties from the church were laid upon you, penalties that are temporal, or temp- penalties that are not, a, not eternal, but, but are, that are uh, post-existence um, or purgatorial, then you could take some of those extra merits, and the Pope, because he had the keys, the keys of the kingdom, by the way, is the proclamation of the gospel, right? When, when, when Jesus says, I've given you the keys, it's the proclamation of forgiveness that he gives to the, to the preachers of his word or the proclamation of damnation. You bind sins and you loose people. 
you pr- proclaim the gospel. But the Roman Catholic concept of the keys was that they had they could unlock the treasury of merit where the extra graces were stored and they could apply that to John so that he could get some years off purgatory or so that he could get some years off his temporal punishments, whatever was applied to him to do or anyone in response to their sins. Well, the, 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 what the reformers thought was that this idea that there's any work that you can do that's above the righteousness of God in his commandments was simply a diminishment of, the right, of God's righteous requirements. God's perfect righteousness is displayed in his moral commands as we know it. Now, these are amplified in the New Testament, but any of those commandments in the New Testament can find a place, can be subsumed under the Decalogue. You name any of them and we can find a place where they can fit in God's in God in the Ten Commandments. Whether it's, you know, I, I can say, love to God or love to your neighbor, right? You say, you say, pray without ceasing. Well, love to God, love to your neighbor. All of those commands find their place subsumed under the perfect display of God's moral righteousness as we know it. Because of course we don't see it all. We see a glimpse of God in scripture. God has been pleased to reveal to us a glimpse of himself. Just a glimpse in scripture, true to himself, but it's only a glimpse. Um, So if there's any righteousness which is above God's demonstrated righteousness in scripture, then the reformers felt that that's a diminishment of God's holy commands. And um, we ought not do that. Now, I think when we start to compare or to think about ourselves with respect to works of supererogation, there are ways in which evangelicals can rely on the merits of others. And we do this by, um, uh, by I think, this is, it's a bit of a stretch here, but I think that we do it when we resign the works of holiness and godliness to the clergy. And somehow, in a very vague way, we, we think, well, the clergy is doing the works of holiness and godliness and seeking God, and, and they're praying, um, and they're, they're uh, living holy lives, and somehow that's going to trickle down on me. And I don't have to live a godly life like a preacher does. There's a subtle kind of danger here that we have to be aware of, and it's, it's utterly false, because a preacher although held to very high standards, but in terms of judgment, right? A preacher will be judged more severely. That's why James says, don't many of you try to aim to be preachers because it's a scary thing how they will be judged. Um, But everyone's called to the same godliness and devotion to God and prayerfulness and seeking of God so that the parishioner should seek God no less than the clergyman. And I just think, and I'll leave it at this, that there's a very real temptation that we think that the preachers are the ones who are called to really seek the Lord. And we're just gonna benefit from that. <clears throat> it's a danger <clears throat> that we have to, be, we have to face. Um, um, preachers um, don't pray because they're prayed to, you know, paid to pray. Preachers aren't paid. You guys don't pay me to have my devotions in the morning. That's not, I'm not clocked for that. Um, I'm not on the I'm not on the on the on the uh, on the church's dime for that. I have to do that for myself. 
And if I don't do that for myself, then everything else is just going to be false and a sham. And so your devotional life is to be no less vigorous and powerful than a clergyman's or a preacher. And so just, I'd say, be aware of that temptation. I think it's very real. John, yeah. This might be helpful. It's yeah. Not this regard. To, take, to steal something from Paul Washer. Yes. Talking about the reverse, the very same thing you're talking about. Growing up in ministry as well, we look at young men who are fervent about reading, they're reading Spurgeon, they're reading their Bible, and the immediate reaction, Paul Washer says within the church, is you should go to seminary. Right. Rather, no, not necessarily. Very yeah. few should go to seminary, like Lloyd Jones says. Right. Um, do everything you can not to become a preacher. But rather, we should be rebuking the 40-year-old men and 50-year-old men who've sat in the pew all these years, don't read their Bible, and aren't fervent about leading their families. And you, you know, I'm not saying every house has to have all the big fat books of John Calvin. And, you know, I have this by my, you know, my toilet reading is John Calvin and whatever else. But at the same time, <laughs> we in the church... You should have Luther in the bathroom. That'd be more fitting, I think. <laughs> but exactly what you're saying is we turn around and we see the parishioner, a clergyman, I'm sorry, a parishioner uh, being fervent in his devotions or whatever, reading, and we automatically elevate him to yeah, ministry. That's good. Well, you should be a bricklayer. You should be whatever you're doing. Yeah, that's a good point, John. You know, and uh, we yeah. should be encouraging, and that's where I think Well, you're into the things of God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, then you should live a life that is about God, which must be a preacher. And growing yeah. up in ministry, we saw not just within the clergy, but within, oh, you should be in missions. And so many people get into ministry and they shouldn't be in ministry at all. Yeah. Just because they love the word. Every yeah. man should love the word. Yeah. So. It's true. That's a good point, John. That's a good point. It's a very good point. I think the other tendency, too, is to see ministry as unattainable. You know, they're full time, they've got the time to you know, right. seek God and do all that. And so. Uh, me is it's easy to be uh, deceived by the devil and, and depressed about that and say, well, I'll never attain to that. So you know, I might as well just stupid drywall, yeah, <laughs> stupid yeah. unspiritual drywall. Yeah, whatever, whatever you're in is not a sanctified uh, calling or occupation. What I'm trying to say is the tendency is to become very discouraged um, because you, you'll never attain to this high level of the guy in the three-piece suit up there with the microphone strutting around thumping his Bible. That, that's not me. I'll never get there. So mm. you let yourself off the hook and you don't obey Jesus Christ to be holy in your calling yes. and to be uh, fervent mm. in seeking God as, you, as we are all called to be. So you know, we don't we don't bring ministry down like we the the office of the minister is is not the same. We're all priests and kings unto God. We're part of that royal priesthood and and holy nation, and we are all called to be perfect, even as our heavenly Father is perfect. Mm. So, because you see a minister, you can't let yourself off the hook and say, "Well, I'll never get there." And just go off and sin and just never, never put forth, uh, you know, never cooperate with the Holy Spirit to be sanctified in your own life. Mm. Same tendency. Mm -hmm. You never get as holy in the super. Right, know, as the, as the, 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 so, the martyr, the guy who, yeah. 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 Hold on. 
the guy in the pillar with maggots falling so out of saying, his yeah. wounds. So you'll, you'll think there's merit in the maggot or the bones or the whatever. Yeah. You just think you'll never get there. And you know, the, 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 um, the problem too with, with in, you know, looking at different dimensions of this, works of super irrigation, looking to people to supply something for yourself. It, it's, it's all taking your eyes off Christ. Jesus is the, is the source of grace. Jesus is the source of life. Jesus is the, is the giver of his Holy Spirit, who is the, the only motivator of true holiness in our lives. And um, yeah, it's, it's, and we can do that in the sense of discouragement. You know, we can, you read the, the life of Hudson Taylor, and man, I had to, I'm never going to get there, right? Like, um, um, and, and, uh, but it's, it's Jesus, it's the Lord. You know, there's a lovely hymn that I used to sing. It'd be great if we could learn it as a church. The tune may be kind of funky, but the, uh, sitting at the feet of Jesus, oh, what words I hear him say. Um, and, uh. Bless me, O my Savior, bless me, as I sit low at thy feet. Um, this this um, wonderful experience of uh, walking with the real present Jesus Christ each day, each morning, um, is, is very, very precious and um, something that none of us should neglect any day. Jesus comes to us in the, the fullness of his person and all of his saving benefits to us every morning, every night. Um, and uh, he will make us holy in a way that we can't make ourselves. Not through, not through striving. It's hard work, but it's, it's Jesus at work in us. So let's, uh, any other thoughts or comments tonight before we... It's nine o'clock. Well, let's pray to the Lord Jesus tonight. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the Lord, the giver of life. We thank you for your righteousness. We thank you for your holiness. We thank you for your devotion to your Father and that you invite us through your blood and through your broken body and through your risen victory you invite us and you give to us everything that is yours. We thank you that all that is yours is ours tonight. And your life of holiness is ours tonight. And so we come to you in all of our brokenness and in all of our backwardness and in all of our failure. And we thank you and praise you and we ask that you would continue, O oh Lord, to complete your work of holiness in us, making the crooked place straight making, Lord, that which is warped and far from God, true and near to God, we pray. Do your work in us. And for Christ's church, O Lord, make us a true and a godly people, a peculiar church that shines like a city on a hill, we pray, by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And Father, finally, help us tonight to acknowledge your gifts wherever they exist in this world, and in acknowledging them, to use them for your glory. And also, Lord, to speak words of gospel hope to our neighbors who are using your gifts ignorantly and to their destruction. O oh, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're at number 14. We've only got how many to go now?
We're not even halfway there. 25 to go. 25. <laughs> so much more good truth to study. So much more good truth to study.